S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 6, starring Buck Henry, originally aired on October 30th, 1976. Hello and welcome. My name is Keith. Hello, Matt. Hey, Keith. Happy Halloween. It's nice to have Halloween in March right now. And uh, joining us tonight is Mark. Hello, Mark. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, Mark. Buck Henry is back for his third time. They're still in Brooklyn. And the guest tonight making their final television appearance is the band. It was certainly exciting for me for Buck Henry. Uh, as we've discussed previously, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the band. That style of music doesn't do it for me. Uh, but Buck Henry's previous episodes left me feeling very optimistic heading into tonight. I was not super familiar with Buck Henry outside of both of you speaking highly of their hosting capabilities, so I was excited for that to get a, a proper look at his chops, but I was very excited for the band. They're my father's favorite band. I probably knew them before I knew what Object Permanence was, so... Uh, <laughs> This is this is pretty close to home, you know. I was I was singing along with some of the songs outright, and I don't do that all that often. So I was I was pretty pumped when he asked me to do this episode. Not gonna lie. The only thing I really knew about the band for the longest time was that it was Robbie Robertson's old band, because in the early '90s I consumed much music, like I had a serious television problem. And he had this early 90s album, I think it was called Storyville. And Much Music played two of his videos to death. Uh, this song called uh, What About Now? And another song called Go Back to Your Woods. They weren't great, but he had, he had this like raspy voice. There, there was something I found almost uh, magnetic about his videos. So I was kind of curious when I went back to to look. I listened to the album and then I listened to the band. Anyway, long story short, none of it's for me. But I only really knew the band uh, because of Robbie Robertson, who I understand that you were not a particularly big fan of. That would be correct. Uh, there's a long story behind uh, copyrights for the the Ooh. songs. He just like was rolling in all of the band money while they had to hold like benefit concerts so that some of the other members would be able to like pay medical bills in their later age and stuff. That is yeah. shocking and disappointing. There's, there's a, you'd have to like go look it up and I'm sure there's another side to the story that I don't really have time for, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It is a tricky story. I mean, I am a huge fan of the band, incidentally, Buck Henry as well, <laughs> but uh, band fans have turned on Robertson and there is a lot of truth in the Robertson's a jerk side of things, but there's also a fair bit of truth in Robertson's side. So tonight is also Chevy Chase's last night as a full-time cast member. Chevy definitely, as Matt's mentioned a number of times, the first big star from the show. It hits me a couple of different ways. Uh, I, I think of it as, uh, as the dude doing this podcast with you and uh, watching this show, I feel 
excited. It's probably because I know there's nothing to worry about. I know that there's great things to come. If I'm working there at the time, I'm nervous. Chevy's the star. He's on the magazines. They've won Emmys. They're a ratings hit, and he has been positioned as the star of the show. So I'm a little nervous if it's 1976 and I'm working there. As a fan, X number of years later, I'm not doing math. You told me there'd be no math, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I think you you covered a lot of bases there. Um, Watching it myself, there are definitely episodes where it feels like him being a star is getting in the way of the point of the show. The episode that uh, I got to sit in on where he wasn't there just felt like everyone else had a lot more room to work and breathe. This is just the thing that has to happen at this point in time for everyone involved. The future looked very bright for Chevy Chase. So another interesting tidbit, a trivia history information here is this is actually the night that John Belushi first meets Kathy Smith. Now, Kathy Smith was a alleged drug dealer, alleged groupie, but she hung out with the band. She was particularly close to Levon Helm, Rick Danko, and Richard Manuel. And uh, a few years later, she'd be the one that would inject uh, Belushi with the 11 speedballs that killed him. So wow. this is a particularly dark bit on this Halloween night. And not to be morbid, but it's perfect that it's on halloween night that halloween, uh, yeah. such a grim specter would arrive yeah yeah so let's start with our cold open and our cold open is called jaws halloween and it features gilda in her living room the doorbell rings we hear the canogram voice uh gilda thinks it's a late trick-or-treater and she tries to send them away until the uh the voice says they're there for unicef uh gilda opens the door and it's the land shark and she gets eaten the land shark's mouth flops open, and there's Chevy with a big smile, and he gives the live from New York. Land shark to me is always funny. It's predictable as hell. It's repetitive. From the from the minute you hear that door knock or the garbly voice, you know what's coming. But because they've spread it out, and because it's just so darn weird, it's always funny, and it always works. I, I loved this cold open. Agreed. As soon as I realized what it was, I. I... I popped for it. I was like, oh, sweet. Uh, I, in my head, I call it Jaws 2 because I think I at some point mm-hmm. I saw the first sketch referenced as Jaws 2. So it, it's still Jaws 2 in my in my personal head canon. I loved it too because they they do it so wisely. Like you said, they they don't beat it to death. I mean, there's no there's only one joke there. Uh, so, you know, you give it room to breathe. I wonder if Chevy asked for it on his way out. Hey, let me do this one more time. But it's also just very refreshing to not have the same routine every time on the cold open so that was refreshing as well but this one in particular gave me a a nice charge to start the show yeah i think the fact that you know what's coming is part of the fun there's like a a tension build woven into the way all of these work Uh, that kind of does remind me of jaws you know like the 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 building towards the door opening and then the snatch uh so yeah there's always a lot of fun although i kind of was hoping chevy would would say the live from new york in the shark voice but I don't know, maybe that's just me. But yeah, this was a great way to get it going. Is UNICEF still something that's done on Halloween? When we were kids, it was everywhere. I know like up here in Canada, Sharon, Lois and Bram were the ambassadors because I haven't seen it done in years. 
I, I didn't. I had no idea there was even a relationship between UNICEF and Halloween. Oh yeah, they would give you at school little like Halloween orange and and black and yellow boxes with Halloween things, and you take the UNICEF box while you trick or treated. Yeah, it looked like a little kind of Tim Hortons box, uh, like a Timbit box, and you take it around, and people would put money in it. I've never yeah. experienced this or had any idea that that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. We're the same age. I know, I know. It's weird. Different school, I guess. I'm younger than you, and I remember this. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so we now go to the monologue, and Buck Henry comes out and says it's nice to be there with the crew and the cast. And the cast is not quite as depraved as the papers uh, report that they are. He says Jane lives with her husband, and they do what normal people do, and all her bruises are gone by Saturday. John Belushi's a wonderful guy, even though he is severely in debt to the mafia. Lorraine's comedy comes from hurt, and even though she's only 23, she's been hurt by hundreds or thousands of men. Dan Aykroyd sleeps with a bike chain in his mouth, and he loves animals. He even keeps a goat in the dressing room. Gilda Radner is pregnant with her brother's child. Garrett Morris is a cannibal. Buck goes on to say that Chevy is leaving the show to open a dress shop with his uh, partner, I suppose, Lloyd. I didn't think this was particularly well written or overly funny, but I really enjoyed Buck Henry's delivery. But there was a couple things I liked and didn't like. I thought he was rushing a little bit, and I kind of wish he'd slowed down. Uh, I did really like how he'd dress, and I wrote myself a note that said, pretty much how I'd dress. He started with Jane's abuse. That's a pretty hot start. Lorraine being an uber slush. Good Lord, she's only 23,000s of men. Gilda fucks her brother. But then I just thought, when he got to Garrett's a cannibal and Chevy has a gay lover, uh, I just thought it it was getting a little lazy. Jane with the bruises and uh, Gilda with the brother and Lorraine with the thousands of men. Some of the jokes really brought it. But then, oh yeah, Chevy and his boyfriend have a dress shop. That's just, that's not a joke at the same level as the other jokes, nor is Garrick being a cannibal. Uh, real softballs on a couple of these jokes that that I, again, really found he was racing through whatever reason. Fine use of Buck, I thought, who is apparently doing his best to look 67 yeah, they didn't. Some some of them definitely worked more than others. Once I heard Jane's, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be sweet. They're going to go all in." The rest of the cast, and then they just didn't. It was fun. Uh, it definitely showed like a, a level of of comfort and familiarity from Buck. Like I don't think anyone walking in for their first night couldn't pull this one off. They didn't all land. Uh, I agree with you there, but the overall delivery and and sort of charisma and energy of Buck carried it through, and I had some good chuckles at this one. Heavy jokes, which are kind of where. Henry sometimes shines. So then we go to Samurai Stockbroker, and this one was written by Alan Zweibel. Rolling Stone puts Samurai Futaba, or The Samurai, as the 13th best character to date on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Wildly incorrect. Saturday Night Live produces so many consistently odd and engaging uh, weird little characters. It's like their bread and butter. It's what they're good at. Belushi's fake Japanese is pretty funny. And it's surprisingly spot on. Oh, come on. He's just waving the sword around. You're trying to tell me that this is, you know, as good as like Matt Foley or some of the things we're going to see later. I just think it's in a different league. I don't think it's nearly that funny. That's nostalgia glasses in my opinion. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Sometimes the the older stuff gets extra points just because it gets there first. It's it's a fun character, but a lot of the cachet of it's kind of, I don't know, it's like the, the land shark in that it's a pretty one-note joke. There's not a whole lot of room to work with. And if he was a real samurai, I think he'd have better control of his sword. Woo! 
Oh, indeed. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah, it took a little chunk out of poor Buck Henry swinging that thing around. I don't know. That seems like an overestimation for my money, but again, I wasn't there at the time, so maybe this this was hitting way harder. Yeah, so in this one, the name is not even Futaba. It's uh, Mikaraki, and Henry comes in as his character, Mr. Dantley. And Dantley's panicking over the drop in his stock values. Now, there's some fun bits in here with breaking a graph in half so it looks better and a little bits with uh, splitting stocks in three ways. The end of the story is basically that Dantley is depressed, doesn't know what to do, and said he'd jump out a window if he had one. So the samurai smashes out a wall and makes a window. And in doing that, he clips Buck Henry in the head and cuts him wide open on the forehead. And then Henry, just to add insult to injury, has this awkward fall as he's climbing out the window and part of the set breaks. <laughs> For me, the samurai gets more and more cartoony each time. He's basically at the point now where he's making noises. It's the same shtick. It definitely shines when Buck Henry's involved. Um, this sketch is, of course, most memorable for the uh, for the cut and the what happens after the fact. As far as the samurai sketches would go, they're always better with Henry. That's where I sit. And if they never did any of these samurai sketches again, I'd that'd be great. It was certainly nice to have Buck Henry there. I don't. It's like when Brian understands Stewie the baby on Family Guy. Buck seems to be, oh, well, I see exactly what you mean. <laughs> he has that, uh, he has the perfect delivery. He's the perfect playoff of him. I did really like the abacus bit, uh, especially when he printed before. The, the sketch is just not. Yeah, it, it was a little long-winded for sure. There was ups and downs. I had a pretty good chuckle at the abacus bit. And like the very end too, after Buck goes to jump out the window and then <laughs> the, the set breaks and he just falls, <laughs> already having his head split open. I laughed hard at that, but I like bloopers. But then afterwards, when, when the samurai ticks another body on the board, like he's actively hunting poor Americans or whatever, I actually thought that was a pretty funny resolution to the whole situation. Like, how could he be so incompetent? Oh, no, he's actually a secret evil genius. So we go to a Chiron, and the, the woman doesn't know that a plotting causes blindness. Our next sketch is Baba Wawa, not for first ladies only. And this features, of course, Gilda Radner as Baba Wawa, Jane Curtin as Betty Ford, and Lorraine debuting as Rosalind Carter. And Rosalind Carter becomes the third first lady to appear, although Jane has done the voice uh, in the past. I thought in this one, Jane and Lorraine were so good that it really minimized Baba's role in the sketch. And if they are going to continue to dump these on us, this is the way to do it and make her the sort of secondary character in the bit. Hilda Radner's Barbara Walters sucks. She doesn't know how to do it. She does a stupid fucking voice every time. And every time it pisses me off and it makes me want to see somebody do it better in the 1990s. I was off sick with COVID for the past couple of days, like I mentioned, and I was on the YouTube. I pretty actively try to avoid watching modern. When I say modern, I'm 40 something. So that when I say modern, I mean anything like post 1995. So take that <laughs> for what you will. But I try to avoid watching much Saturday Night Live at all. This is stupid. Doing a stupid voice is not funny. And that's all she does. She does the same stupid voice over and over. And it's really starting to piss me off because Gilda is such a good performer. And my big takeaways from her from season one and up to this point are Barbara Walters and that stupid Emily Latella that she did on Weekend Update. She's better than this. But, you know, I get it. They're popular. They, they click in with you know, probably the, the broad audience and that's fine. And I'm not trying to say I'm better than the broad audience. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I mean at all. But I'm trying to say objectively, Gilda Radner's Barbara Walters is fucking shit. 
and there's nothing redeemable about it. It tanks the whole sketch for me. Jane Curtin was great. Lorraine Newman was great. I really appreciated their impressions. I don't know these two women. I like to hear them in interviews. Watching them give performances, I, I can certainly inhabit the, the moment in which they create these characters, especially Lorraine, who I thought was terrific here. Gilda Radner's Barbara Walters is a fucking pox. Why don't you tell us how you really feel, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not subjected to as much of it as you guys. This is only my second time seeing this live in action, aside from having seen like clips of it before, but in actually watching the episodes. And I'm already over it, not, not going to lie. But I, I think you're right, Keith, that putting it in with another thing so it's not the main thrust of the sketch it's just makes it more tolerable i thought jane and lorraine were both fantastic in this um jane's line uh i think it was our first one where it's like uh what's your success or the secret to your success as a a, a first lady it's like well i think i look like the kind of person you couldn't imagine ever going to the bathroom but uh yeah no i just like her delivery the line itself i i thought the rest of the skit was good enough that my blood didn't boil over and I wasn't ready to jump through the TV at the Barbara Wawa. I think we're all in agreement. The issue for me right now is I'm I'm actually getting very annoyed by Gilda Radner. So we are now six episodes into season two, and she has done nothing of any real note because she's getting bogged down in these one-note characters. Now, she's got three more memorable characters to come, two of whom are probably actually bigger than what we've seen so far. And I'm really hoping that they're not overly repetitive like Latella and Baba has been so far. Glore really tells us that Gilda Radner was the best who's ever done this. And what I'm seeing right now is someone with some really good chops. We've seen her be fantastic, but... Right now, I mean, the takeaway is that Gilda just beats the drum the same way so many others will go on to do. And this is really a shame to actually go through week by week and to look at her legacy as we have been. It's it's kind of being destroyed by the reality that up to this point, with some minor exceptions, she's really just been the same two characters over and over again. I think up to this point, there's something like 18 appearances between Latella and, and, and Wawa. And at this point, it's not even just the same shtick over and over again, but we keep seeing the same joke. She keeps repeating the, Har the Harry Reasoner joke and stuff. And this is really not looking good for what we come to know is this Gilda Radner legacy. Now, I, I know going through the shows, having seen 99% of these the shows over the years, that she does redeem herself. But watching it in this context week after week, it's really... Gilda is slowly losing a lot of stock for me. You really can't trust the lore, because eh? kind of like I mentioned earlier, uh, when I was a kid and growing up being a younger SNL fan, the lore is that Chevy was the king of the desk. And holy shit, is he not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel like um, back in the day when you had to be in front of the TV at the time that the show was on, you couldn't just pull up any old piece of media anytime you want, right? Like I still remember being a kid in the 80s and 90s. And if you weren't in front of the TV when, you know, Family Matters came on, you just didn't see that episode of Family Matters. I think consuming media was way different back then because I've, I've watched far less of this than you guys have. And I'm already noticing, like, how many times is Chevy going to fall on his butt? Those repetitive go-to jokes at a time when the fact that it's live is a big deal 
and the whole thing is is still brand new and they probably don't have the same kind of systems built in for writing everything. It's easy to go back to the well and I think it probably translated a lot better back then because the excitement of the live show made it a lot more forgiving. It's like watching improv. You'll laugh at stuff that's not even that funny just because there's there's a, a level of excitement and, and engagement and liveness to it. So I think they get away with a lot back then that doesn't fly now when you can just pull up any episode you want and watch it at any time you want and watch two or three episodes in a week. And it's just like, geez, you just did this on Tuesday. Why do I got to watch you do it again? You know? And I don't mean to be facetious, but I certainly think cocaine makes things a lot more forgiving as well. Yeah. Watching it this way, we're really seeing that the lore is way off. Our podcast is a service. (laughs) And the thousands know it. Thousands know it. It's a public service. These are all just PSAs. Mm-hmm. Now we go to a Chiron. It's uh, this gentleman here in a fur hat that doesn't seem to know where he is, is an electoral college dropout. Um, this was a strange one. This guy was kind of either loving it or just not aware that he was on camera or not aware that he was in a studio audience. Yeah, this guy was definitely on drugs. He's like, <laughs> if, if the 70s were just poured into a human being and set out into the world, I think this guy is that guy. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't there at the time, so I can't I can't specify for sure. So our next bit is a, a Garrett Morris piece. It's uh, Roots. And Garrett goes through his family tree and shows pictures of himself as many of his black and white ancestors. Uh, Garrett had a lot of fun with this. It, it didn't really work for me as far as one of Garrett's longer pieces. The audience didn't seem to be digging it. And I wondered at this point in time, the Alex Haley book Roots had been out for about two months. But had this same sketch, word for word, same delivery, everything aired like a year later after the miniseries came out, I think the audience would have been rolling in the aisles. And I think the lack of audience love kind of hurt this one on a side note i was mildly annoyed that they used a picture of john quincy adams and labeled it as robert morse garrett in the pictures was friggin' hilarious though a lot of times with live performance you know you're feeding off the audience reaction and the more the audience is into it the more you can get into it and i i feel like yeah this this one the the book didn't have the same you know it wasn't the same cultural touchstone at the time i feel as as the the miniseries would would come to be later on the longer it goes on the more it sort of loses its steam because the live audience wasn't getting into it. Some of those photos, though, you could tell he was having a blast and that sort of carries it. But it, it does drag on a little too long for what it is and for its timing, I think. This particular sketch for me was a disaster. And thinking about, oh, if they try to do it after the movie, I don't know, such touchy subject matter. Yeah, I don't know. I, I need some sort of, how do you make it funny? Uh, they figure out how to make it funny. I trust them completely with, the, I shouldn't say I trust them completely. Good Lord, listen to what I just said of a Barbara Walters. Um, no, I don't think it gets any better. I think they do a goofy Kunta Kinte or some other prominent character that uh, is uh, mimicking an actor from the film and uh, continue to make a mess of it. Debate yeah. 76. This is the second time they've had the final debate. And this one is hosted by Buck Henry, now wearing a bandage on his head where he was cut by the samurai sword. The panel is played, they're non-speaking, but they're uh, embodied by uh, Bruce McCall in his only Saturday Night Live appearance, Marilyn Suzanne Miller, and Alan Zweibel. So basically this debate has uh, devolved into a uh, sort of a a pageant. Uh, The first up is the swimsuit competition, and Carter and Ford come out wearing sashes and old-timey black bathing suits. The audience went absolutely nuts for Aykroyd as Carter, 
Chevy comes out also wearing a bandage and uh, he's wearing flippers. So they do the K, they do the, the catwalk and uh, Henry talks about them and their, their body measurements. Then they do a talent section where Carter does dentistry on a secret service agent played by Garrett Morris. And Ford teaches people how to vote by going into a voting booth and closing the curtain and then falling off the stage. They then go to a question section and there's a question hidden in an envelope. Carter is asked what it would be like to be the most powerful man in the world. And he says he's tried to get to know people across the country. Ford uh, destroys his envelope. The question pertains to a very detailed series of mishaps that occurred at a dinner with uh, the Brezhnevs and Henry Kissinger, where everyone gets hurt due to Ford's clumsiness. And this was a very long sketch. A couple of laughs for me. I, I don't know is if Aykroyd is now wearing fake teeth or doing something different with his mouth as Carter, but that's absolutely working. Chevy with the bandage is funny, and this will turn into sort of a theme throughout the show. But overall, I didn't particularly like this one. It's certainly not nearly a patch on the first debate they've done. This one started so strong for me that the premise and the execution of like the swimsuit section, I I was having a really good time. They picked the energy up a little bit on the back end with the questions but I, I think where it started so strong and then lost me so quickly and meandered so hard i i was more disappointed in it than i should have been for how much i liked the start it's always worse when you're disappointed that that always hurts a little more the show is called s and hell because there are such complicated levels of this show and such a minutia of excruciating things to watch uh, sometimes one of them being in my opinion, this overly long skit. I enjoy Aykroyd as uh, Carter, definitely. Uh, him coming out in the suit and smiling was my highlight of the sketch. Buck Henry was wasted as the host uh, completely. Chevy did a fall, maybe it was for old time's sake, uh, but this was this was a pretty big misfire for me. I didn't I didn't care for it. Minutia of excruciating things to endure is a great name for like a avant-garde punk band. <laughs> <laughs> One thing about this sketch too, it looks like the credits were pretty much exactly the same as uh, as they've been the whole way through. Minor changes maybe between the first and the second one. And what a disappointment. I really liked the last debate sketch. And the, the one they did, Mark uh, Chili was here, I believe, for Karen Black. That was a really good one. She she played this moderator that was just, she really inhabited a bizarre character uh, as the moderator. Buck Henry was just there. Like, it, it couldn't, it could have been anybody. Who gives a shit? Could have been me. Karen Black did something very interesting with a moderator character in an otherwise dreadful episode. This exact same joke was actually when Garrett's playing Ken Norton and he makes a joke about how they had to go through the the swimsuit portion uh, in and out of place fashion too. So this this feels like something they took from from that earlier and then threw into a different realm and expanded on it. So now we go to a weekend update and Chevy's bandage has gotten bigger. He's on the telephone and he says to uh, the person he's talking to that they can smoke as much as they want and it won't affect their motor skills. So the top story of the night is that Buck Henry cut himself. As a far gone, downed, and drugged out, John Belushi hits him with a sword. Uh, the first returns are back, and it's Ford with zero, Carter with zero. Sight gag, where a picture of Betty Ford petting a dog, says she won the first prize in a dog-smelling contest. And then they air two commercials. Uh, the first one is uh, Carter meeting women as he talks about lust in his heart, and a, uh, an attractive young woman walks a beach. And then Carter's uh, commercial 
It's basically Gerald Ford's pardoning of Nixon speech and some clips of Nixon and Ford hanging out. Lauren was particularly proud of this one because they played the pardoning speech three days before the election. What did you think of the first half of Weekend Update? Garbage. No jokes. The speech was stupid. I don't really think it should be allowed that a comedy show should be running these kind of, even as a joke, these lengthy political ads that might sway any sort of voter. Not that I think any sort of voter is basing their vote on a Saturday Night Live sketch. But I, I mean, I don't I don't think you get away with this today. They had Gerald Ford give a message on the air, which you, you remember how I feel about that. It was very poor. You got to make fun of the, the politics, and that's great. I really like it in the cold open. Later on, they will really focus it on the, the cold open, I find, with a little bit more in Weekend Update. I did have a pretty good laugh at the dog smelling contest joke. Just the picture, the angle was perfect. But outside of that, to getting overly political and, and having something to say, I don't know, you're a comedian, man. Like, don't make such an obvious political stand. Like, the, the Carter thing, they were trying to be funny. The Ford bit just seemed like an actual, screw this guy. Too much spite in this for me. Yeah, they certainly didn't go after his clumsiness and that one. No, that was that was definitely a straight up political statement. So we now go to a commercial and it's the Super Bat-O-Matic 77 and it is basically a parody of the Super Bass-O-Matic 76. This whole thing is about uh, witchcraft and it's Dan Aykroyd wearing a cleric's robe and he shows a new blender for putting together potions so you don't have to waste your time with uh, cauldrons and mortars and pestles anymore. And just like the Super Bassomatic, Lorraine is here to say, wow, that's great, Bass. Ackroyd's great here. Lorraine was great here. It is a parody of a parody, kind of. This certainly isn't Super Bassomatic for quality, but uh, not a bad little throwback. Keith, if I recall correctly, I ranked the Bassomatic as my favorite sketch of season one. You certainly did, yes. So uh, I don't, this is, uh, it, it was nice to see this, but it's not nearly as tight uh, which I thought was a huge step down. Like Lorraine should have just did like, mm, that's good bat. And that just should have been it. And I, I really wish there were the, the callback jokes had worked a little better. They don't work as well when you change the lines though. The one thing I really took away from this is this is clearly a dude that's about to write Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no question about it. Yeah, this is like, Perfect peak distilled Ackroyd for me, though, with the, the shysty, fast-talking salesman mixed with the occult and the super weird and off-kilter. And and it definitely doesn't work as tightly as the Bassomatic does. And it relies on you having seen the Bassomatic, which I thankfully was there for that episode, so that worked out nicely. I think I kind of liked it better in a weird way, though. It's, it's not as ha-ha hit you hard funny but it's definitely more heady and weird and and i didn't laugh as hard but i think i might have enjoyed it a little more we're back at the weekend update set jane comes out with people in the news and she mentions a few things she's also now wearing a bandage and really the take home of what she says is that this is chevy's last episode and he's on his way to replace johnny carson now this was not a thing it was never a thing it was something that was talked about a fair bit since the 1975 New York Magazine article said that uh, NBC saw Chevy as the first person who could replace Carson, but Carson doesn't go anywhere till 92, and by then Chevy is nowhere near in the contention. I was really worried this was going to be a face-making segment, and I'm where Chevy just goofs off for the camera. I was really glad it wasn't. Oh, I was Rest waiting for the faces. Oh, Sorry, ahead. I didn't mean to Were you? Okay, because I wasn't totally at sea there then. No, I was no. in the exact same boat too. As soon as she came on, I was like, don't be stupid faces, Chevy. Don't do stupid faces. 
So this little mini segment actually gets points for not being that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Chevy then plays five finger fillet, a quick shot of Ford and Carter where Ford has a mustache drawn on that goes on to air during a speech where Chevy talks about how Saturday Night Live has been unbiased and they won't endorse either candidate. And uh, then Chevy signs out with good night and have a pleasant breakfast. I'm glad that things are about to get shaken up. This, this format is really tired right now. Yeah, this was... Uh, worse for me than the first half because I found Jane's bit on Carson seemed pretty mean spirited. Yeah, and like this is the second time that I've seen them take shots at Carson in Weekend Update. This felt much more direct. Although I do have to say, Chevy was pretty good at the old five finger fillet, and I, I'm looking forward to the next Weekend Update I watch not having Chevy Chase in it. So uh, now we go to our, our, our first of two musical performances, or our first three of four, depending on how you look at it. It's the band. They started their time as the backing group for Ronnie Hawkins. They were known as the Hawks. Um, and then they later backed Bob Dylan. The uh, The thing about the band was they were super popular as a backing band, and they eventually sort of went out on their own. Their debut album was called Music from Big Pink. It was released in 1968. And this segment is a three-song set comprised of Life is a Carnival, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, and Stage Fright. So I'm just going to go through the the three quick, and then I'll I'll turn over to my buddies here. So Life is a Carnival was released in 1971's Cahoots, and uh, I'm not usually a big fan of this song, but I, I really enjoyed this performance. The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down was released in 69 on the band's the Brown album, or the the band, it's called the band, but people call it the Brown album or the Brown one. Even though Joan Baez's version did much better, uh, this is the one for me. It's certainly fallen into a bit of disfavor these days. It's truly one of the best songs of its era. This is a tremendous performance. The song was actually retired. Levon Helm stopped singing it after their last waltz concert. And the third song is Stage Fright, and it was released on the album Stage Fright. This one's a lot different than the other ones they have to do. Rick Danko sings lead. I think Rick Danko has one of the most underrated voices in rock history, but he wasn't at his best tonight. It was either him or his audio. Something was really bad, um, and it didn't do this song justice. To me, this was a super strong set. I would have loved if The Weight or Up on Cripple Creek was there, but, you know, I'm not complaining too much about that. Further to Mark's point earlier, band fans aren't supposed to like Robbie Robertson, but my God, what a cool dude he was there. Real cool cat, and uh, they were all doing their thing, but Robbie Robertson just looked so friggin' laid back and loving what he was doing. Mark, you're a big band fan. Matt, you hate when there's too much music, so I'm super eager to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I will admit that I was disappointed with myself and how much I enjoyed Robbie Robertson in this. Uh, I'll give you that one. I love live music, but watching a recording of live music, it's rare for me that that live energy always translates. And for me, this just poured out of the screen, but I'm super biased. Um, Life is a Carnival was one of those songs when I was a little kid that when it would come on, I'd super dig it. And then the night they drove old Dixie down is just a classic, powerful performance. When they rolled straight into the song, at first I was just like, ooh, back-to-back songs. This feels weird. I don't know if I like this. And I feel like Matt's going to hate this. And then when it got into the montage of, of their their photos and stuff, it started to feel a little bit special and important because they, they did announce that, you know, 
this is one of their last live performances with the last waltz coming and it feels like this is a big hurrah for them and kind of a special thing for snl to get to host too so that's when i kind of came around on it and then when they bounced right into stage fright i was all in i was pretty happy and pumped that song uh, hits uh, a little bit of a special personal chord for me. When I started doing a little bit of performance myself as a teenager, this song started making a lot more sense. I I would actually disagree a little with you, Keith. I think Rick Danko, part of his performance when he's singing this song is to emote his own discomfort. And so like his voice is kind of going off and, and showing sort of a vulnerable, breaky emotion that is subtle and maybe I'm reading too much into it because of my own business, but I thought it was great. I loved all of this. I had moments of hesitation in the middle, but I came around hard. Was his audio off or something though? Like it, he seemed a little more nervous, like with the live TV angle and all that. And he was kind of far away from his mic. Unique voice that no one else has. Oh yeah. Counting crows tried. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This kind of music just isn't for me. It's a little too rootsy. It's a little too Americana sounding. Uh, but when the music comes and it's a, you know, the band are competent professionals. Uh, I mean, they're rock legends for a reason. It's just not for me personally. When, when, when I noticed they started a second song, I was like, oh, they're going to put them together in this segment so there doesn't have to be more later. That's fun. But then there's more later anyway. Uh, so this was entirely too long for me personally. You know, I, I try to take into consideration the fact that this is uh, for fans and for a lot of people. This is this is a bit of an event. And I watched it and I tried to like the music. I just don't like this music. All right. So let's move on to our next sketch which is called Ointment, and it's a parody of The Omen. The whole sketch has kind of this weird, hazy glow. We have Belushi playing Damien, uh, Buck Henry and Jane Curtin as the parents, Lorraine as Miss Baylock, and she actually looks uh, a good match physically. Aykroyd comes in as uh, Father something. He's a parody of Father Brennan. He's been impaled by a street lamp. His face is all mangled up. I, I don't get the reference, but I haven't seen The Omen in about 25, 30 years. They go to a pet cemetery. Uh, Chevy enters as a photographer. The audience loved it. I, I don't know, Matt, I assume you know The Omen a hell of a lot better than I do. I was pretty excited when I saw it come on. It, they really pulled off the uh, the hazy aesthetic of The Omen very well. I think the uh, the face disformity was just something they threw in because his head got cut off by a pane of glass. The hanging was nice, because that, that was a big pop in the movie. Lorraine coming in with those fangs, and there is a shot at some point where she's in the foreground just vamping the shit out of those fangs, and it was probably the highlight of the episode for me. It was definitely too long. You know, it was like, it it really came off like a Mad Magazine parody. Like, yeah, we watched The Omen. Here it is again but a little silly. This was a roller coaster ride for me. Lorraine vamping with the the, the fangs, I, I definitely caught. I really enjoyed that. Aykroyd was great as the priest. Buck Henry was having a lot of fun uh, chewing the scenery. I think the whole eye thing uh, was just an excuse to get the ointment joke in there. Chevy, too, when he came in with the, the photos, and he's going through all the photos with the 666, and then he does like a, a energy change, and he starts talking about like, oh, this is uh, this is one uh, made a fool of myself at my Christmas party. I had a pretty good chuckle at that. There was some really strong moments in this, but it definitely could have used a little bit of editing for sure. Our next bit is a introduced by Buck Henry, and it's a Gary Weiss film called It's Halloween Night. And it features a song by Howard Shore, 
that uh, is sung while Buck Henry gets a uh, gets his hair and makeup done in order to uh, to be a woman for Halloween. Uh, all I could think of watching this was how much he looked like B. Arthur when they were done. Yes. Um, same year. Yeah, same year. <laughs> I was okay. like maybe he was going for a B. Arthur parody thing. One person, it's mean. Two people, it's a coincidence. Three people, it's true. So yeah, okay. So yeah, I mean, this was okay. It's not the greatest Gary Weiss thing ever, but uh, Buck was all in. Um, and uh, and really, uh, just the look on his face when he was in full makeup was absolutely hilarious. And the uh, the makeup and hair guys were having a great time with it too. So uh, I, I, I kind of enjoyed this one, though there's not much to it. This was pretty disappointing for a Gary Weiss film for me. Uh, his bit with Buck Henry last season, where they're at a toilet seat store, was one of my favorite moments of the season. Uh, so, uh, so I did feel a bit let down by this. It was just a little strange. I didn't find it particularly funny. I mean, I mean, visually it was funny to look at uh, because, I mean, Buck Henry is there looking like B. Arthur. But I, I didn't think there was anything special about it by any means. There was too much eye stuff for me. The close-ups of like using the, the, the pencils and the, the putting on the eyelashes and the, the little curler things. I get a little squeamy about some eye things, and there was just a little too much eye stuff going on. Outside of that, Buck Henry sold the shit out of it. His his commitment, I think, made it feel like it didn't drag too hard, although they really, the last shot where they just hung on his face and then he did this awkward wink was just felt really long and kind of clumsy. Our next bit is just a quick thing where they send to Garrett Morris at the gravesite of Harry Houdini. Houdini said or is alleged to have said that he will return 50 years to the day after he died at his graveside. And Garrett just reports that some guy showed up at the grave, but it wasn't Houdini. No, this could have basically been dead air and I would have had the exact same emotional response. It was just kind of just flat in there. I wasn't really sure what they were going for. It's like they want to do something for Halloween. And they, they had ideas. I don't know if it was because it was Chevy's last show. I know there's a big election coming up. I, I think the Halloween stuff was missing this episode when they tried to do it, which maybe they just felt obligated to because of the date. So then we go to Mr. Mike's Least Loved Bedtime Tales, written by Michael O'Donoghue and performed by Michael O'Donoghue. And this one is The Enchanted Thermos. And it's basically an Arctic version of an Aladdin tale, where a genie comes out of a thermos, kills a kid, and goes through his pockets. Quick, I found it funny. I like these. These will come back later in different forms. Yeah, his delivery when uh, when he said the, the, the kid dropped dead and then the genie went through his pockets, that, that got me pretty good. Uh, I thought that was a, a really well-executed uh, little joke. I thought this was pretty solid. I did, I did think it was pretty funny when he talked about his little heart. Uh, that gave me a laugh. <laughs> yeah, that was good, yeah. His little so, heart. Matthew. Yes. <laughs> this is something I wrote down as, if I could ever get the rights, I would have Matt deliver this story. Did you enjoy this? Yes. As somebody who's known me for a while, uh, you were spot on if you assumed that I would. I did. I do like this uh, Michael O'Donoghue kid quite a bit. Uh, but when you find somebody like this that you find so interesting from a generation previous, uh, it can be tough to to find more. And uh, so that that's always strikes me as a bit of a disappointment uh, because I, I do think you're right. I, I would have enjoyed this fella quite a bit. He's He's my kind of guy. So then we go back to Houdini's grave again, and it's Garrett still there, and his hair is all sort of puffed out, and uh, he, he's quite terrified. I, I couldn't help but take this as a take on the old thing that, you know, black people are afraid of ghosts and stuff. 
Um, what a terrible use of Garrett. What a terrible use of, uh, you know, the date where Houdini's allegedly supposed to re-emerge. This, this was just dumb. I, I really didn't like this. And, and I, I kind of actually felt bad for Garrett on this one. Same as like when they, they cut back to it, it felt like they had to from where they left it hanging on the last one. And I was just like, all right, here we go again. Garrett sells the being afraid. They take too long hovering on him while he's just saying gibberish and looking scared. But yeah, I, I didn't get this at all. That makes three of us. Uh, I mean, I did when they cut back to him and his hair was big, I, I did chuckle uh, slightly because, I mean, Garrett was just pulling a good face and he had that wig. This is Halloween filler. And then we go back for our fourth segment here. It's uh, the band again, fourth musical segment. And it's Richard Manuel singing Georgia on my mind. Again, another tremendous singer in the band. They've got three real strong, strong singers in there. He does an excellent version of it. Now, like the Ray Charles version is the the big version. And and I'd say this one is better than some of Ray Charles's versions. And I know that's sacrilegious to a lot of people. Interesting thing here is it's Georgia. The song is Georgia on my mind. And it's three days before the governor of Georgia is, is, is running for president. That is not an accidental choice. They're certainly not playing Detroit Rock City there for uh, for Gerald Ford. Yeah, I was pretty surprised to see them coming out with a, another musical performance after doing three in a row early on. I thought it was a great performance, an interesting choice of song for them. I think this this goes to the, the point I was making earlier where they were uh, trying to showcase everyone's skills by having Richard Manuel. Uh, I didn't clock that political angle, but that makes it all make a little more sense now. So yeah, I, I thought this was this was good. Uh, you know me. Uh, I've already said what I have to say about the band. I do wish we had some Detroit Rock City. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah. So we go to the uh, goodbyes, and everyone is wearing bandages on their head. Uh, they all wave goodbye, and, uh, and and that's the end of this episode. They did have a little uh, throwaway line about, thanks to Garrett, wherever you still are. Like, oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. Tying back into the, the thing I'm trying to forget about, so that was a, a little annoying. But I did notice Chevy going around and, and giving everyone a big hug. I got a vibe like he kind of wanted to acknowledge it a little more and, and everyone was kind of awkwardly hugging him. And then when he gets around to Belushi, Belushi was like talking to Buck Henry mm-hmm. and then like did a side little slap on the side of Chevy's arm and like gave him a wave in to bring it in. Like, let's just yeah. do this, you know, come on. But then as soon as they broke from the hug, they turned away from each other. And then they all ended up piling onto the floor into a heap and like a big cuddle puddle. I felt like there was a lot of emotions hiding behind this this end of the night. Yep. So let's jump into the epilogue. So Buck Henry will be back. Um, Levon Helm comes back later this season, actually. Uh, Rick Danko will be back a few seasons later with another group. And Robbie Robertson comes back a couple of times. This is Garth Hudson and Richard Manuel's only appearances on the show, though. So let's go into our ratings. Buck Henry. This was definitely, thus far, Buck Henry's worst episode. But yet he was still all in, and he was doing really well with everything he had. Um, He's a stellar host. He, He goes along with the odd and sometimes instigates the odd. But he's also a performer that'll sit back and let uh, everyone else be crazy. And he doesn't have to be in everything. They're not writing a show for Buck Henry. They're just writing a fun show, and Buck Henry will be there where he, wherever he's at. Uh, this was, uh, in my opinion as well, his his least effective episode so far as host. Uh, I didn't really feel his presence like I felt in the other episodes. It's like he just kind of floated through it. Uh, nothing really 
jumped out as something like he played off really well or something he did that I found especially interesting. Uh, so I must say, at the end of the day, I, I ended up fairly disappointed with uh, this this particular one. I don't really have any frame of reference uh, for Buck Henry, so I was probably more open and engaged to him just as a presence than I guess you guys being disappointed with having seen him do better. So I quite enjoyed him as a host. There is definitely a sense of comfort and familiarity that I, I can feel with him and the rest of the cast that's kind of pleasant and nice. So I quite enjoyed him, even if this was his his least good performance. I should probably go check out his previous ones if they're much better. Good stuff. The music, for me, I mean, this was excellent across the board. Uh, you know, Danko's audio or his mic, there was something up there, but three out of four performances were pretty flawless to me. I'm usually with Matt, where the less music, the better in a way. But uh, but I certainly, as a, as a fan of the band and, and knowing the history of what this performance is, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I, I can't help but be glad to have seen this. I had no idea this even existed, funnily enough. And, and the fact that it is their last big performance before the last waltz uh, makes it feel kind of special. And, and normally I wouldn't. I wouldn't want for a song. I'm also quite biased in this regard, so I absolutely loved it. But it was tailor-made for me. Doesn't work for me, lads, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's a respectable opinion to have. <laughs> so, fellas, what was your worst segment of the night? Garrett Morris, Houdini. Yeah. Again, he, he had a good face when I cut back to him the second time, but outside of that, there was a zero engagement from me here. Really felt like back of the show filler. Well, it's Halloween. What are we going to stick in here? Eh, put Garrett in a wig at Houdini's grave. Like, I just thought it was lazy. Ah, uh, that's funny. I agree too. That was just, it was just weird. So much more could have been done. It was Halloween, fifty years post Houdini, and they just kind of had Garrett do a like a like the buckwheat thing or something. Uh, they, I think they just left money on the table with something really strong here. What was the best for the night? This is kind of tough because I had a couple of really big laughs, but then, you know, a lot of the, the skits that I laughed really hard at had really undesirable elements woven in. I guess maybe I'll have to go with Batomatic. It tickled me in an odd way. The callback, the, the, the peak Ackroyd, the weirdness of it. Lorraine's just super goofy. That's great. Bat! I, I think that one has the most hits with the least misses. Going to have to agree with Mark that this, this episode was challenging for me because I came in with the high expectation for Buck Henry, probably a little too high, let's be fair. It proceeds to kind of just plot around a lot. This this was really the only one that I can think of that from start to finish, I was like, okay, I get what you're doing. It's effective. And as far as what this episode gave me, it's what I liked the most. I cheapened out and went with the uh, the Halloween Jaws cold open the the land shark does it for me um and though there's nothing fresh or new there was just not a hell of a lot else to pick from for me star of the night matt lorraine newman for me tonight uh i thought her uh vamping was the highlight of the the episode for me it was nice to see her back with her big grin drinking the whole bat and i thought she did very well in the first lady's sketch as well yeah, you'll get no arguments from me between the first lady sketch, the the playing with the fangs, and and the reaction that got, and uh, the whole bat. Yeah, she uh, she knocked it out of the park. I went with Ackroyd, even though some of the material really sucked. He he he, his Carter at the debate was good. His priest was very good. 
um, and uh, the Batomatic was good. I just couldn't really go anywhere else with this one because no one else was featured strong enough in anything good. So overall, from me, this was definitely a weak Buck Henry episode. Nothing overly hilarious. It was not much that was piss poor. The music to me was great, but I am a huge fan of, of the band. Uh, a few things were funny, a lot of things were dragged out, and a lot of things were underdeveloped. This was truly, for me, a middle-of-the-road episode, except the music, which might be fine for some folks, but it's a big letdown when Buck Henry's the host. So they're a day before Halloween, they're three days before the election, it's Chevy Chase's last episode, and Buck Henry is the host. A lot of stuff there. There's far more material in there than, than what we get to see. It's like, uh, how many things could they, could they possibly have messed up? The running gag with the bandages was an excellent touch, though, and it's just kind of that sort of fun, random-on-the-fly stuff that probably would never happen these days. So this episode, for me, gets a 6 out of 10. It was a reluctant 5. The band bumped it from a five to a six for me, considering all they had to, to go with and all they could have done. Uh, this was a big letdown for me. Me too. I didn't get the music bump, uh, so I'm sticking with a five out of ten. Very middle of the road. I liked the monologue okay, but uh, just too many things that didn't work. A couple of things that went on too long and just no big hits. Like you said, like nothing exceptionally terrible, but nothing great. So that's smells pretty middle of the road to me. So that's a five with a bullet. I'm feeling way off on this one, but it is my first time with Buck Henry, so uh, who I quite enjoyed. And I absolutely love the music. And there's a few moments that I laughed really hard. So I'm going for a seven. Very good. With my six, Matt's five and Mark's seven, it averages out at six. Over at the IMDb, they gave it a 7.6, which makes it really close to our exchange rate of 1.5 off. Love it when it comes together like that. Rolling Stone gives the band number nine for best musical appearances to date, which based on what I know and what I remember, that uh, that that jives for me. I, I feel just a little less about it. There's there's no other way to put it. This, this was just less my particular aesthetic. So I, I think all of this is just terribly high. The band at number nine, honestly, I, I could see them even going higher, but that's extremely biased. And I can super uh, appreciate that as a subjectivity uh, matter. And also, this is the last episode for short-term writer Bruce McCall. Bruce did six, he wrote for six episodes. He is credited with writing part of the uh, Mardi Gras special that comes up in February. As far as regular standard episodes go, this is the, the last one for him. He does eventually resurface at The New Yorker, where he becomes like a very prominent illustrator. I think he did 77 covers and, and a columnist. He's done really well for himself. Um, but that's the end of Bruce McCall, and we actually got to see him briefly tonight. And uh, our other big departure, this is Chevy Chase's last episode. And uh, Matt and I are going to do a special talking about Chevy episode shortly. So I want to thank you, Mark, for coming back again. You've joined us for two in a row now, and... Uh, Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. We'll be here in about a week, and it's going to feature uh, my buddy and actually Mark's longtime buddy, Kevin, our host for the night. Matt, do you know who the host is? No. Dick Cavett. Sweet. I love Dick Cavett. <laughs> His musical guest is Rye Cooter. I, I feel the same way about Rye Cooter as I feel about the band. It's just not for me, but, you know, I get why people like it. Sounds like a sensitive medical condition. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yes, we'll be back in about a week with Dick Cavett and Rye Cooter. Until then, we'll be trick-or-treating with sharks and drinking bat next to Houdini's grave here in SN Hell. 